Okay, Acts chapter 23. Uh, before we begin, let's get into some of our memory work. Uh, the third missionary journey begins in Acts 19. What is that chapter about? What city are we in in Acts 19? Ephesus, and we see the riot in Ephesus that occurs there, and knowing this will come handy, come in handy when you begin studying the book of Ephesians, so try to tie that in with the book of Ephesians. Chapter 20, with the city of Troas, and then the last part of the chapter is directed to the elders at Ephesus. Chapter 21, what city are we in? Jerusalem, and what happens to Paul? He's arrested. Okay, in chapter 22, we studied last week, what happened there? Paul's defense to the Jews. Paul's defense to the Jews in Jerusalem. And uh, we'll go, well, I want to get to the next slide here, but let's look at this one briefly. <clears throat> Look down at the bottom line. We're in that section that Acts called, I would call Paul's trials and imprisonment. Basically, chapters 22 through 28. And uh, notice and this is AD 58. About AD 58, Paul is going to, this covers about five year period. And, uh, but try to remember uh, for what it's worth that AD 58 is about the time frame we're in now. And we studied last week about the incredible itinerary that God had planned for Paul. He couldn't have found a PR group anywhere in the world that could have laid out a plan or an itinerary such as God had for him here. In chapters 22 through 28, the people that he's able to speak to and defend the gospel to is, is quite amazing. It could have never occurred had the events not happened the way they did. But chapter 22 is the Jews. Uh, chapter 23 is the Sanhedrin. And by the way, if you're making notes or you want to use this as your memory work, this is your layout for the rest of the act, book of Acts. So this is our chapter summaries basically for the rest of the book. And I'll leave that on the screen there for just a minute if you want to uh, use that as a reference. All right, let's get into our text for this morning, Acts chapter 23. We left off last week with the chief captain has gotten himself in a pickle, and he doesn't know what to do with Paul. He, he allows him to speak to the Jews in chapter 21. That didn't work out too well, so now he tries to scourge him Finds out he's a Roman citizen, and it's hands off at this point. We have to back off because Roman citizens have a much have many more protections and benefits by the law. So at this point in time, he gives him back to the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. Okay, you guys have at it and see what you can do with Paul. So that's where we find ourselves as we start, as we begin Acts chapter 23. He is now before the Jewish council, as uh, the last verse in chapter 22 said, call your council together. That's what uh, we call the Sanhedrin sometimes. This is a group made of 70 
men, mostly chief priests, elders, and those type people, they have gained a lot of authority since basically the time of the Babylonian captivity was over. They began to get more and more authority because the kingship is, has gone away. So they began to get more and more authority. Basically, their uh, core subjects are those that pertain to religious matters, religious law. So they're at the height of their power. Around the time of Christ to 70 AD, they're at the Sanhedrin is at the height of their power. But all the while, there's somebody who trumps them, and who is that? In all authorities, the Roman government is is over them. They temper everything that the Sanhedrin does. So the Sanhedrin's down here working basically in Jerusalem in that area. But anything that spills over that they cannot handle, such as this, as Paul, the Roman government trumps their authority and takes over. And they're, they're always working underneath that umbrella, if you will. Let's begin the reading here in the text. Verse 1, Paul, looking steadfastly on the council, said, Brethren, I have lived before God in all good conscience until this day. Sometimes people look at this as an arrogant comment. Uh, I don't think it is such. If you tie this in with Acts 26, verse 9, it seems to include the period of Paul's life which occurred before his conversion. It seems to include that as well, if you tie that in with Acts 26, verse 9. And I think perhaps part of his effort is to gain favor with the council, like we saw the previous chapter. He tried to gain favor with the Jews by saying things that they could understand and appreciate. Perhaps by saying this, he's saying that even when I was a persecutor, I was doing the things in good conscience. I was doing things that you would approve of. I was doing things in a good conscience, but something happened to me on the way to Damascus. I was converted. It was something that I could not ignore, that could not be pushed aside. It was a very life-changing event. Verse 2, the high priest Ananias, after he hears this, he commanded those that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Paul responds in verse 3 with a what? How does he react to that? You whited wall. You sit there and you pretend to judge me and you're actually doing a maneuver That is contrary to the law itself. By having me smitten, you haven't even heard an accusation. You haven't heard anything yet. And you command me to be smitten on the mouth. This is contrary to the law, Paul highlights. Verse 4, they respond and stood, they that stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Paul at this point appears not to know that. And certainly the high priest wouldn't be dressed in his garb that would identify him as such. So he didn't know. And then Paul responds after that by saying what? I did not know. I did not know. 
For it is said, and he appeals to the law of Moses here, verse 5. Notice he's appealing to the law of Moses. Again, he's saying something that's favorable to the audience that he's in front of. I knew not, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, thou shalt not speak evil of a ruler of thy people. Now, verse 6, Paul perceived that we're shifting a little bit here in the thought. Verse 1 through 5 are basically Paul in front of the people saying, I've lived in all good conscience here unto this day. They respond. The high priest responds by saying, smite him on the mouth. Paul responds back and said, I, I, you know, I didn't know that he was the high priest. Now we shift gears a little bit in verse 6. When Paul perceived here, thinking about the people that he's speaking in front of, he's perceived that one part were Sadducees and one part were Pharisees. And when he perceives that, what, is, what does he say? I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and the reason I'm here today is because of what? The hope and the resurrection of the dead. Now, this is something, as we've been studying many times, Paul introduces this subject anytime he has an opportunity and a chance to speak or to preach. He mentions the resurrection. We've talked about the resurrection mentioned at least 30 times in the book of Acts, at least, or referred to even. So even here in, in a court scene, Paul brings up the hope and the resurrection of the dead, having perceived that one part are Pharisees and one part Sadducees. Now, what's, what did Paul perceive? In your own words, what did Paul understand about the difference between these two groups? One key difference. Okay. One believed in the resurrection the Pharisees, and the other did not. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. So what then ensues? He, he, he poked the bears, yes. <clears throat> Paul has a very, very keen insight on these people. We've said before that there was perhaps no one greater to go to Jerusalem and try to reach the Jews than Paul. His background, his Roman citizenship. He keenly was aware of the difference. I'm here because of the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And that's actually true, wasn't it? I'm here. That's at the core of the gospel. The gospel, preaching the gospel is exactly why I'm here in front of you today. Because I preach the gospel. And I stand for the truth. Verse 7, when he had said this, or dissension rose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Now here's an explanation in verse 8. Luke is giving you and I a little explanation, a little insight as to what the Sadducees are all about. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. 
The Sadducees, we'll pause here for just a moment and think about the group of the Pharisees. They're, a, they're a, really a, a group of blue bloods, a group of aristocrats that did not believe in the Spirit, as he says here, the angels, the resurrection. Uh, the, they basically want to take the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and that's their, what they uphold as the truth. Everything else is underneath that, is below that. That's why it's interesting in, in Exodus 3, Jesus saw fit to quote Exodus 3 when talking to Moses, God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Something we might look over. But Jesus quoted that to say that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, they are still existing. Their soul still exists. And that flies in the face of what the Sadducees believe. Now, I also want you to go back to Acts chapter 4. Remember what happened in Acts chapter 4. We have the Jewish council causing problems for the apostles very early on. Acts chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. What group is it that appears to be the ringleaders coming to the apostles to have them arrested? The Sadducees. Also look at Acts chapter 5, verse 17. When they confront them again later, they confront the apostles again in Acts chapter 5, verse 17, the high priest rose up and all that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees. Many of the Sadducees have either a high priest in their family or have had or related to somebody that's high priest, and they're the blue bloods, though. They're the aristocrats of the Jews. But their control is tempered in this court by the Pharisees, and the Sanhedrin's authority is tempered by the Roman authority. So you see how they are limited in their power somewhat. Now, let's continue the reading here. Verse 9, there arose a great clamor. Some of the scribes and Pharisees' part stood up and strove, saying, we find no evil in this man. Now, these are Pharisees speaking, and they say, well, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to Paul? Maybe that's true. We believe in that. And what if that is true, that some uh, spirit has spoken to Paul? Verse 10, when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul would be torn in pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring them into the castle. Now let's go back and, and consider verse 1 through 10 here, and let's compare it to what we saw last week. Looking at the speech that Paul gives here, it's nowhere near as long, it appears, no, nowhere near as detailed. Basically, you could uh, summarize it by saying, he said, I have lived in all good conscience, and I'm standing here because of the hope of the resurrection. That's about all he said. Why do you think Paul cut it so short? 
with this group of people? Why was it such a short speech? Anyone? Yeah. I don't think Paul felt like he had a chance. He's standing before a group of people that there's absolutely no chance of getting out of here on the good side. But I also believe that he wanted to highlight the difference and the hypocrisy in this council. That this council is deeply divided over a core belief that cannot be dismissed. These people rule this group of uh, people in Judea, and it cannot be overlooked. So I think he wanted to highlight that. It's not simply to get out of the court as quickly as possible, but I think he wanted to highlight that while he was here, had the opportunity to express the differences And it's a very, very deep, very important difference that he highlighted as well. So I don't don't think he additionally found any chance with this Sanhedrin council at all. Verse 11, the night following this, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, for as you have testified concerning me at Jerusalem, you will also witness for me where? At Rome. That's where Paul wanted to go. You recall in previous study, we've read that Paul wanted to go to Rome. That was one of his goals. And the Spirit is now telling him, assuring him that you will be able to go to Rome and testify and witness for the gospel. That's going to be another couple of years before we get there. However, he is going to be able to go to Rome. Now, again, once again, I don't want to leave the first 10 verses here without highlighting the fact here we have this chief captain, and he doesn't know what to do with Paul. He rescues him from the mob, allows him to speak. If that didn't work, then he's goes to have him scourged, and that was not going to work because he was was a Roman citizen. He gives him back to the Jewish people, even their council, and that didn't work. So now he's back into the hands of the chief captain once again. Any thoughts or comments through verse 11? I would just make a comment about verse 1, going back to your first point on the, on the slide, and, and that is Paul's good conscience. Uh, and I also would go back to the previous chapter, verse chapter 22, verse 3, where he describes himself as zealous for God, just as the Jews are, and just make this observation. Even though he was in good conscience, he had done things you know, toward the law, he was in keeping with the law. He was zealous for the law, but he still wasn't saved. Mm-hmm. He was still in need of the gospel. Um, so, and that also goes to Romans, the 10th chapter, where Paul's prayer was for the Jews. Even though they had a, a, zeal, a zeal for God, they were still lost. They were still in need of the gospel. Very good point. We can be honestly mistaken 
can't we? We can think that we're right and feel like we're right, but not be right. Uh, we don't have the truth. Paul didn't have the truth. He wasn't following the truth. He hadn't been converted. So he has, uh, was uh, mistaken, even though he did have a good conscience. So we cannot always follow that conscience. The conscience has to be trained, spiritually trained, to, to understand the truth, doesn't it? Go ahead. I find it very interesting that God's using a heathen government here to carry out his purposes. Mm-hmm. It is very, very. God can use anybody, anytime, any place. Weather, he can use nations, he can, it doesn't matter. God can use anything at his disposal. And it's not a miracle. This is providence. Providence is just as powerful as a miracle, isn't it? Did I see one other hand here? I just wanted to say, you know, um, Paul's been through a lot physically and mentally and everything. And so for God to say, be of good cheer, I'm going to send you to Rome, you know, I'm with you, I I love you, I'm going to protect you. Mm-hmm. That's very comforting. And, and the reason that's very comforting is because when you've been suffering physically and emotionally, that takes a toll on you. Mm-hmm. And that makes you kind of feel discouraged sometimes. Sometimes we get that way. And so for God to say to him, I'm, it's okay, I'm with you, I understand. And he would have known because of what Jesus went through, this is what we go through. And it's, it's encouraging, especially in this time of day, especially for us. You know, you see all this bad stuff in the world and you're thinking, why be good? Why do this? Why do that? Because Paul did it, the apostles did it, and God was with them, and God will be with you mm-hmm. too. Yeah, there's no reason for us to think that Paul, being the great apostle that he was at this point, to think that this didn't bother him and uh, that he was above this. It bothered him, but I think that's the very reason the Lord came to him by night, to cheer, cheer him, to encourage him, to say, you're going to get to Rome And everything that occurs between now and Rome will be easier to accept and endure and whatnot. Uh, Very good. All right, let's uh, briefly look at the outline here. We see Paul's defense in the first 10 verses. And then verse 11, a verse I would highlight for sure is that the Lord assures Paul here that he would witness in Rome. Now, as we move on to verse 12, when it was day, the Jews banded together and bowed themselves under a curse, verse 12, saying they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul, and there were more than 40 that made this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, we have an idea. We bowed ourselves under a curse. What you need to do is you need to call the the chief captain and allow Paul to come back to us. We want to question him further. We we on the on the guise of we need to further examine him. And you think about what happened previously is is you know the uproar, the the chaos that ensued in that court meeting, and uh, they're having to basically beg him, please let us. Talk to him once again. Let us re-examine him a little bit further in more detail. So they're ready to slay him. They have people uh, 
that are going to camp out in certain places apparently to slay Paul, verse 15. But, verse 16, Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait, and he came and he entered into the castle and told Paul. Paul called unto him one of the centurions and said, bring this young man unto the chief captain. He has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me unto him and asked me to bring this young man unto thee. He has something to say. The chief captain takes the young man aside in private. He conveys what he had heard, what he had understood that was going to happen, that this conspiracy is there. Verse 20, he said, the Jews have agreed to ask thee to bring down Paul tomorrow unto the council, as though thou would inquire somewhat more exactly concerning him. Do not, therefore, yield unto them, for they lie in wait for him of them more than forty men who have bound themselves under a curse, neither to eat nor to drink till they have slain him, and now they're ready. Now they're ready to slay him looking for the chance, looking for you to say yes, looking for your promise. You will deliver him, and then they'll have a chance to pounce on him and kill him. So the chief captain, verse 22, let the young man go, and he told him, don't tell anybody. Keep this a secret. Let no man know what you've told me. So let's step back for just a moment and look at verse 12 through 22. When I read a passage like this, particularly in Acts, and I read passages like we'll read later about the voyage to Rome and all the details that are involved in that, what do narratives like that have to do with Acts chapter 1 verse 8? The mission of the apostles is to witness to all the world, preach the gospel. And what does this have to do with that mission, that goal? I step back and I think about cases like this, and I think what we're seeing unfold when the apostles agree to deny self, take up their cross daily, bear their cross. When they agreed to do that, this is one of those things that's involved in that. All of these intricate details tell us the work of building up the kingdom is not a glorious work as such as men would view it. It's not an easy work. It takes effort You know, we're reading just a few verses here, and we don't see the the agony that Paul is in, the turmoil that he's in. But he must have been in, as we saw verse 11 indicated. And all these things, they're, they're conspiring. He's in Jerusalem. They're conspiring to kill him. Paul, at this point, does not know what's going to happen, as you and I do. We've read ahead. We've already know what's going to happen. Paul doesn't know that. But we see the work that it takes, the blood, the sweat, and the tears it takes to preach the gospel. Common events happen. These events happen to deter us. 
This is not an easy thing for Paul to endure. The voyage to Rome was not an easy thing for him to endure. But they kept on and they kept on and they kept on to preach the gospel. One person at a time, one witness at a time. And that's, that's the work of the kingdom, isn't it? It's a slow and steady and incremental work that takes lots and lots of effort. Maybe it helps for you to think about it. it's like being in the trenches. For a military person being in the trenches, you're actually seeing what's taking place. You're seeing all the bullets fly overhead. You're hearing those whiz by. You know what it's like to be in the trenches and how cold it is at night. When it, when it rains, you get wet. That's what we're seeing for the soldier of the cross here. Paul is getting wet. He's getting cold. He's hungering and thirsting through shipwrecks, through beatings, through stonings, 2 Corinthians 11. Through all of these things, Paul endures and keeps on enduring. And boy, does he set the bar high for you and I. I have so far to go to get to where Paul is. I have so much to do to get even close to being what Paul has set the bar for a Christian and a minister of the gospel. I have so far to go. But I see in Acts a lot of what it takes. When 2 Corinthians 11 talks about all the things that he endured, all the perils that he endures, go back to Acts and read some of those. Some of those things we're seeing for ourselves in the book of Acts. And one other thing I want to say before we leave verse 22. Verse 22, the chief captain takes his young man aside and listens to him to this Maybe what might be a very incredible, incredible story, but he believes him. He believes this young man. Perhaps he understands these Jewish people that he's dealing with, and he realizes that, yes, it definitely could be true. It's definitely probably true. Knowing these people, I wouldn't put it past them. So the chief captain believes him as well. Verse 23, the chief captain takes action. He called unto him two of the centurions, said, Make ready 200 soldiers to go as far as Caesarea, and horsemen threescore and ten, seventy, as I calculate that. Spearmen 200, and at, at the third hour of the night, he didn't wait, he didn't delay, he bade them to provide beasts that they might set Paul thereon, verse 24, bring him safely unto Felix the governor. Now this conspiracy here, as we highlight on the screen, is a, an organized conspiracy. So many times we see the Jews in Jerusalem reacting in a knee-jerk reaction. But now this Conspiracy seems to be an organized conspiracy. It's not that haphazard uh, fly-off-the-handle uh, type of reaction that the Jews typically had. It's an organized conspiracy. It's uncovered by Paul's nephew here. And verse 23, why would the chief captain arrange for such a group? Verse 
There's 470, as I counted, soldiers, many on horse, trained soldiers. Why would, why would the chief captain gather such an army, a small army, for this purpose? Okay. Yeah, let's go back to that idea we talked about last week. He's a Roman citizen, so he has to handle this Paul with <laughs> very, very great care. You don't deal with a Roman citizen in just a haphazard way. If this gets out of control, it's going to come back to the chief captain, isn't it? It's going to be his head if this all gets out of control. So he understands the wrath and the anger of the Jews. And he understands that he's got to get Paul out of here. And this, what an opportune time for him because I know that he is ready to get rid of him. Don't you think at this point in time, he is ready to get rid of him. He's like a hot potato. You don't know what to do with him. So we have a small army gathered together, and he sends Paul thereon to bring him to Felix the governor. Now let's catch up on uh, the outline here in verse, well, did that a little bit too early, but that's okay. Chief captain escorts Paul to Caesarea. Small army of 470 soldiers. We'll see in just a moment the letter, the actual letter itself to Felix. And then uh, Felix agreeing to hear Paul. Any thoughts or comments up to verse 24? Yes, got one over here. I'm just totally impressed with Paul's faith, demonstration of his faith all the way through here. But uh, you, you talked a little bit about the... the uh, the, the knowledge that Paul has of, of that that he's you know God has talked to him directly and told him you're, you're going to be going to Rome and and the faith that he has in God that God's going to drive that uh, Paul in several in the epistles more than once refers to it uh, his, as a race and he's continuing the race and he's seeing looking at the goal and he sees the goal and and that's where he's headed and he knows God is is uh, helping helping him get to the goal. Mm-hmm. And although the goal in, in part is getting to Rome to, to preach, to teach, but also his goal is heaven, obviously. And, and mm-hmm. it's encouraging to, to me to see Paul's faith. And, you know, we can have the same faith as we can see the goal. And as we're headed towards the goal. Mm-hmm. We, God has given us goals, hasn't he? Uh, goals. And that's why we, we are so helpful to have goals. To help us strive, to endure, to have patient endurance, to work through those days when it's discouraging and uh, times, phases of when it is discouraging to help us get through that. Paul, as you say, is a very good example of that. Anybody else? All right, let's continue. Verse 25. 
Claudius Lysias, who is uh, the chief captain or tribune, as some of your versions may say, as this group is leading Paul. Now think about this. Paul is one man. All these soldiers gathered around him to usher him out of Jerusalem. What a sight. In the middle of the night, we, we left off the end of last week talking about Paul and the protections that he has. He's protected by this evil Roman government. We might think of the Roman government as evil a lot of times, but he's being protected by this Roman government. Many times he's been protected, helped, and here he's being ushered out of Jerusalem, under Judea. He sends a letter, verse 26, Claudius Lysias, under the most excellent governor, Felix, greeting. This man was seized by the Jews. Here's the letter. He was seized by the Jews, was about to be slain of them when I came up upon them with soldiers that I brought, and I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. That's a little bit of a mis, uh, misquote, <laughs> you might say. I rescued Paul. I learned he was a Roman citizen, and, and it didn't quite occur that way, did it? He was ready to scourge him. And then he accidentally found out he was a Roman citizen. Verse 28, desiring to know the cause whereof they accused him, I brought him down unto their council, and whom I found to be accused about questions of their law, but having nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or of bonds. And I, when it was shown to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to thee, charging his accusers that they would also come to you, come to Caesarea, and present their case before you, verse 30. So here, Claudius Lysias, the chief captain, writes a letter to Felix, making himself look good, and uh, presenting the terms of the case so he would understand how to deal with him. I brought him, I rescued him all this while. I found out he was a Roman and I've, you know, and again, we go back to that idea. I think that's part of the reason that Paul is being ushered by a small army is because he is a Roman citizen. Unless this thing get out of control and his rights be uh, uh, broken, then things would get out of hand for Claudius Lysias, for sure. All right, verse 31. So the soldiers, as it was commanded them, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. This map here might show you what that would look like as they leave Jerusalem. They head out on the road to uh, Caesarea, and they find their way, in verse 31, to Antipatris by night. But on the morrow, they left the horsemen to go with him. So apparently the soldiers leave him, and apparently that urgent threat that they feel is, is subsided at this point. We've got him out of Jerusalem. He is in safekeeping. Verse 32, on the morrow, they left the horsemen to go with him, and they returned to the castle. 
And the rest of the group, verse 33, when they came to Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor, presented Paul also before him. And when Paul, and when he read it, he asked of what province that he was. And when he understood that he was of Cilicia, he said, I will hear thee fully. When thy accusers are come, that would be when they have come from Jerusalem, when they have come to present their case, I will hear thee. And he commanded him to be kept, meanwhile, in Herod's palace or Herod's praetorium. The area of Caesarea is a capital city of the area. Many of the leaders would live there and reside there in this city. It was a city that was built by Herod the Great at his time. Herod the Great is uh, not living now, but this is what leads up to about the time of Christ. He, in the prior to the the in the BC, the few years before Christ came, Herod the Great built that capital city. Uh, you recall from our previous study, we read that Philip was abiding here, Philip and his family. Also, Cornelius was perhaps still here. We don't know that for sure, but a couple of chapters ago, we saw Philip and his family is living in this city. Uh, Paul would spend two years here. We'll take a quick peek at, at the next chapter, verse 27 of chapter 24. When two years were fulfilled, and that is the time that he was in Caesarea. So he would dwell there or, or be there, be imprisoned there for two years. And then also we might add to that as well that Herod died here in Caesarea. We see that in Acts chapter 12. He died here. But this was the place for rulers to be. This was the place for Paul to be if it's someone that you cannot determine. You can't determine the, what needs to be done with this man. And you don't know which way to go. Let's send him to the higher courts. And don't you know, again, that Claudius Lysias is all too happy to be rid of this case. Hopefully nothing else pops up for him. But any thoughts or comments on that section? All right, we'll get into chapter 24. Chapter 24 will deal with, our, with his defense before Felix, before Felix the governor. And uh, no other comments. We will stop there, and I appreciate your participation.